We are in chapter 8 of Leviticus. Remember, the book begins with that God spoke to Moses from the tabernacle, meaning that Israel is not allowed to enter the tabernacle because they're not pure, they're not clean, because of their sin with the golden calf. So the whole book of Leviticus is about how does one become clean so that they may enter the presence of God and worship him. So these first 16 chapters is making that point. Leviticus begins with the sacrificial system because the sacrificial system is how one becomes clean. So we went through the five sacrifices that are listed off there, but I told you that there were six in the First Testament. So there's the burnt offering, which is the first one that takes the care of your, atones for your sins, which has to be followed by a grain offering, which is your works offering and your trust in God that he'll provide for you and acknowledging that he already has provided for you. Then there's the peace offering, which is your um, wanting to celebrate fellowship and a blessing of God. And then there's the um, purification offering, which purifies your sins. And then the reparation offering, which makes things right between you and God or somebody else. But the one sacrifice that is not mentioned here in Leviticus, that is not going to be mentioned until Numbers, is the, the wine offering. Every sacrifice requires a wine offering to be poured out if you're wealthy. And so what you basically do is you take a portion of your wine and you literally just pour it out on the altar, which would make a lot of people kind of sad. And the point is that wine symbolically represents the joy of life and the abundance of life. So all throughout the First Testament, wine is connected to, if you can afford wine, it's because you're, you're wealthier than most people. Um, vineyards take generations before they're actually producing grapes. They're actually worth bottling up. And so wine is connected to the abundance of life because you're not just trying to survive. It's also connected to the joy of life because wine lightens the heart. And so this is the offering that you're offering, that you're acknowledging that you're offering up your joy, your blessings, your abundance to God as well. Which is why wine becomes a sign of the Messiah in the Second Testament. Um, because it says he's come to make our joy complete and give us life to the fullest or abundance. So those are the six sacrifices. Now, you had to have seven because seven is the number of completion. So it's not until the second testament that you get to Christ that he becomes the seventh sacrifice. And he becomes the one that fulfills and completes all of the sacrificial system, which we talked about last week. So remember I told you that you, the only two ways you can become clean is through blood sacrifices and ritual washings. So the sacrifices have been laid out. So now you know how to become clean as an Israelite, which means now you have to purify the priest, purify the tabernacle, and then purify the people. And so that's what Leviticus 8 starts off with, is the ordination of the priests. And now they're going to go through the right sacrifices to get themselves purified so that they can go into the tabernacle and go through the right sacrifices to purify that so that they can go through the right sacrifices to purify the people just so they can enter into the tabernacle, into the presence of God and worship him. So chapter 8 is almost a direct quotation from Exodus chapter 29. So when we went through Exodus, we went through the priestly garments and what the role of the priest was and how there was a sacrifice. And so now, chapter 8 of Leviticus 
practically quotes all those parts. And so remember, this is what the um, scholars call command compliance. So the commands were given in Leviticus, or sorry, in Exodus chapter 28 and 29. And now the compliance is given in chapter 8. And so basically what Moses is going to go through is basically say, and then he did this, and he did this, and he did this, as a direct quotation from Exodus, in order to emphasize to you that they did everything exactly the way that Yahweh commanded. Thus, we're not really going to go through all those details again, because that was already laid out in Exodus. There is a phrase that is continually repeated as Yahweh commanded Moses. And this is repeated over and over again. So not only do you have a direct quotation from Exodus 28 and 29 showing you that they're obeying it, but it's also saying over and over and over again, as Yahweh commanded, as Yahweh commanded, as Yahweh commanded, to give you this sense that there's obedience here, which means this is very important. Because remember, Aaron was guilty of the golden calf as well. There's no evidence that he actually bowed down and worshipped it, but he fashioned it. And that is a severe violation of the Ten Commandments. And so now he's supposed to be God's holy representative before the people, and he just fashioned a golden calf. So it's not only important for you to understand that Aaron has to be purified. This is showing that even he is a sinner like everybody else. But that as he commanded, as he commanded, as he's commanded, is showing you that Aaron, who you might think may not be doing the right thing because he didn't do it the first time in Exodus, is actually doing the right thing. And so this repetition on this is to make the point that Aaron is in right standing by the end of this chapter. And that he has made himself clean and right before Yahweh after his sin with the golden calf. Remember that the people, all the firstborn of every family, were supposed to be priests. And they lost that right through the golden calf sin. However, even though Aaron is the tribe of Levi, Aaron was always supposed to be the high priesthood. And so you usually have three levels of the priestly system. You have the high priestly family, which you basically had the head and then his sons are going to become the priests. And whatever one he chooses, most likely the firstborn, would become the high priest after him at his death. Then you have the next level of priests, who are the priests who see the high priest was the only one allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, and the only one who was allowed to go into the holy place, the other high priests, or the, the, the sons. But then the next level of high priests were to be the firstborn of every family, and they were the ones allowed to work in the tabernacle. And on certain occasions, they were allowed to go into the holy place. And then you had every other priest, and that would be the second and third and fourth and fifth-born sons of all these families. And they were the ones who would kind of serve in the community as pastors or ministers or counselors or in a lot of those ministry roles. But because they lost that right, now Aaron and his family remain as high priests. The firstborn of every Levite become those priests that serve in the tabernacle courtyard. And then all the second, third, fourth, and fifth-born Levites become your ministers throughout the land. And when we get to Joshua, um, God is going to assign 23 cities for these priests to live in, and they're scattered throughout the entire nation. So you need to realize that God's intention was always for Aaron's family to be the high priesthood. This is not something they gained because Israel lost the right to be priests. This is something they were going to be all along. 
And so the ordination of Aaron and his sons was always a part of God's plan. But it's even more important now for you to understand that he's doing this unlike Aaron's sin, which is the amazing grace of God that you can have a man who's supposed to be the holiest man in the entire nation, and he commits one of the grievous sins that you could ever commit against God, and yet God is willing to restore him and redeem him and use him as the holiest man in the entire nation. And this is very important for you to understand. Because as we move into the Second Testament, our high priest today is Christ. But if we are all his children, then we become the sons of Aaron, so to speak, the sons of Christ. And we become the high priest in that sense. And so the same level of holiness that Aaron and his sons are being held to is the same level of holiness that you and I are being held to in the Second Testament. But likewise, just as Aaron grievously violated the Ten Commandments and was redeemed and restored to one of the most holiest positions that there is, so you and I have been in direct violation of the Ten Commandments, and yet through Christ's blood, we can be restored into this holy position to be serving God. And so this, and that's what I'm hoping you see, that if, if this is true in the First Testament, under the law of God's redemption and grace and restoration, forgiveness, then how much more true will it be under Christ his Son? And that's a lot of the points that Hebrews is making. If this is true with the First Testament, then how much greater will it be in the Second Testament with Christ? And so God's grace is very much present here, and it gets amplified with Christ. And so Aaron is going to be ordained. Now, normally, the high priest would anoint the next high priest. So as he knows that he's going to begin to die or he would step out at a certain age, um, he would anoint his, one of his sons to be the high priest. But Aaron is the first high priest ever. So the only person that can anoint him is Moses because Moses is the only one who has that face-to-face relationship with God. Now, most of the time, God speaks directly to Moses and then to Aaron. And so this shows you that Aaron's role is primarily priest and Moses' role is primarily that of the prophet. Technically, Moses has every right to serve as a priest because he's of the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. But Aaron being the firstborn is the one that God chose. And this is very important to understand, too, is that God has different tasks for different people. You would think that Moses, of all people, should be the high priest. But that's not what God has called him to. God has called him to a different role in the kingdom of God. And it's a great role as prophet, but because he's a prophet in that sense, he's not going to serve as the high priest. Now, he does have the right to enter the tabernacle and make sacrifices, but he's not the one that God picked to go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, which we'll talk about in chapter 16. So, Moses is the one that God speaks to because he's the prophet, and then Moses speaks to Aaron as the high priest. Therefore, Moses is going to be the one who will ordain Aaron. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointed oil, and the sin offering bowl, and two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble the whole congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. 
so which is also known as the tabernacle. So Moses did just as Yahweh commanded him. And the congregation assembled at the entrance of the meeting tent. And then Moses said to the congregation, this is what Yahweh has commanded to be done. So all of Israel has shown up to watch this happen. Because this is a huge event in the life of Israel. This is going to begin the thing that will allow them to have access to God. This is huge. This is what they... Nobody's allowed in the tabernacle yet. Now Moses has four... Sorry. Aaron has four sons. His four sons are Nadab, Abihu, Ithamar, and Eleazar. These are the four sons of Aaron. The first two are Nadab and Abihu. They're going to have a higher ranking as priests than Ithamar and Eleazar will because that's just the way that God has laid it out. So first Aaron's going to be ordained and purified. Then the four sons are going to be ordained and purified. And then the tabernacle is going to be purified. And so Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed with them with water. And then he put the tunic on Aaron, wrapped the sash around him, and clothed him with the robe. Next he put on the ephod on him. So he puts the, the, the linen robe on, and then the sash, and the ephod. And the ephod is that vest that would mark him as a priest. And next he put on the ephod on him and placed on him the decorated band of the ephod, and probably the breastplate, and fastened the ephod closely to him with the band. He then set the breastpiece on him and put the urim and the thummim into the breastpiece. Those are those, we have really no idea what they are, but stones, for lack of a better word, or bones for determining the will of God, into the breastpiece. Finally, he set the turban on his head and attached the gold plate, the holy diadem, to the front of the turban, just as Yahweh commanded. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it. So he consecrated them. Next, he sprinkled some of the, it on the altar seven times for completion so the anointed altar and all its vessels to wash the basin and stand and to consecrate them. He then poured some of the anointing oil on the head of Aaron and the anointing him to consecrate him. And Moses also brought forward Aaron's sons, clothed them with tunics, wrapped sashes around them, wrapped headbands around them, and just as Yahweh had commanded. The anointing oil. We talked about the anointing oil in Exodus. This is a mixture of olive oil and some other things that we don't know exactly yet because it's been lost throughout history and time. But this is to be poured on their head. Remember, the anointing oil is poured on their heads. So they are now the anointed ones. The Hebrew word for this is Meshach, which we get the word Messiah. If you translate Messiah from Hebrew into Greek, it's Christ. And that's all Christ and Messiah means is the anointed one. Christ was not the only Messiah, and he's not the only Christ. He is one of many. The difference is, is he is the Messiah, the Christ. And it's not his last name either. So, so the reality is this is anointing. This means that they are going to be God's chosen representative. It also means, as a result of this, the Spirit of God is going to come upon them. In the First Testament, the Spirit of God never indwelt people because the only way that God can indwell you is if you are without sin and nobody is without sin until Christ's sacrifice. 
And so the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a revolutionary event in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. So the Spirit would come upon them. Now, normally speaking, there are only three groups of people that ever get the anointing throughout the First Testament. The one group is the priest, the second group is the prophets, and the third group is the kings. They're the only ones who get anointed by God, and they're the only ones who have the Spirit of God that comes upon them and empowers them to do things. Now, the Spirit of God comes upon you to give you power to do whatever God has called you to do. So for the priest, it's to mediate between Israel and God. So the Spirit of God comes upon them to give them the power to spiritually lead the people, represent Yahweh, and do the sacrifices. And you're just going to have to wait for Samuel for kings and prophets. So we have our one of our first anointing. Now, we do see that the two artists that fashioned a lot of things in the Egg books of Exodus, they also were anointed, and the Spirit came upon them. And we learn at times that we, when we talk about the Nazarite vow and numbers, they can be anointed as well, and the Spirit of God came upon them. So there's a few exceptions here and there where God makes allowances for specific things, but generally speaking, only priests, prophets, and kings get the anointing of God. And so they get anointed because now they're chosen. They are going to go through the sacrifices. So they've been anointed. So God is saying, I've chosen you. He's anointed the tabernacle, showing that that's been consecrated. Consecrated just means being attached to God or separated from the world. Now it's time to make purification. So now they go through the sacrificial system. And so Yahweh is presented in the tabernacle and they purify their sin and their defilement. And so basically they offer up a young ox as a purification offering. So they kill an ox or a bull and they pour the blood out in a bowl and they're going to sprinkle this blood in different places. And then they offer a ram as a burnt offering and another ram as a peace offering. Out of the, the four animal sacrifices, three of them are offered up. Now, remember, to sacrifice a bull is like taking your $35,000 truck and slamming it with a sledgehammer and running into the building just for the sake of a sacrifice. They're sacrificing a bull and two rams. A bull for purification, a ram for um, burnt offering, and another ram for peace offering. That's a lot of wealth. That's a lot of sacrifice. That's just to get Aaron the ability to enter the tabernacle for the first time. It's not like if he does this, he's good for the rest of his life. He has to renew this on a yearly basis. This should emphasize to you how seriously God takes purification, that just Aaron alone is requiring all these animals. So then the blood would be sprinkled on the altar and in different parts in the tabernacle. And by sprinkling the blood on the altar and then putting it on the earlobe of Aaron, meaning that he's going to be listening and following the words of God, and the thumbs and the big toes of Aaron and his sons, meaning that they're going to be their works and deeds and their path are going to be dedicated to God. And once again, like Exodus, it's probably that they're picking small parts to represent the whole 
um, because that would get really messy really quickly if you covered the entire blood, body in blood. And so by doing this, putting the blood on the altar, which represents Yahweh, and putting the blood on Aaron, it's showing that Yahweh and Aaron are now linked together. And that Aaron has been anointed, then he's been offered up a burnt offering and been purified. He has now made his fellowship with God through the peace offering. Those offerings are now placed on his body, placed on Yahweh as the altar, which means now they're linked. And now not only can Aaron actually truly be chosen by God, but now he can operate as God's chosen because he's been purified. Therefore, if we have been called to be the priest of God, then the same thing is required of us. So this becomes a foreshadowing that you and I also need a burnt offering, a purification offering, and a peace offering offered up on our behalf. And we have to be covered in that blood and linked to Yahweh. And so just as this is happening to Aaron, Christ becomes our sacrifice, and his blood covers us, and he indwells us, allowing us to be the high priest of God. So in some sense, Christ is our high priest, but we are God's high priest on earth to a dying world. And so this is the same role that we go through. Now, this is important for you to remember because when we get to the second half of the book and we look at the moral requirements for the priests, they are much higher than the everyday normal Israelite, which means that moral requirements apply to us since we are the modern-day priests, high priests, through the covenant of Jesus Christ. So for seven days after this, they offered sacrifices to purge Aaron of his sons of sins. So this isn't something they just did once. Now they begin to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for seven days straight, just so that Aaron can step into the tabernacle. Was this also part of the annual renewing? Yes. Now, it seems like it's part of the annual routine, but it's not specifically mentioned when we get to that annual part. But that doesn't mean it's not, because there's a lot of times that we're not told about them doing this annually. Um, in fact, when we get to, we're going to be told about the Passover that they'll do a year later. And then when we get to Joshua, we're going to be told about the Passover. But very rarely are we told about Passovers being celebrated and that kind of stuff. So it's hard to tell whether they're actually doing it. And God just assumes that you know they are because he laid it out and told you once. Or if this is his way of saying that they failed. Because we're never going to be told about them actually obeying the seven-year Sabbath. And then when we get to the prophets, they kind of make it clear that the reason we were never told that is because they never did it. So it's hard to tell what um, silence means in the Bible sometimes. This is like getting a wad of a hundreds and just kind of throwing in the fire for seven days straight just so that you can be right before God. And as you're killing all these animals just for five men to be able to walk into the tabernacle, that would really press upon you how sinful you are. These are not just the sacrifices that you're making because you have committed a sin that you can think of that you feel guilty for. These are the sacrifices just to get you right enough before God so you can actually make those sacrifices 
for the sins that you're committing on a regular basis. This is just to clean the slate, so to speak. And so if this is the, if any of us saw a farmer just kind of go through his flocks and machine gun them all down, anybody would be horrified. Anybody. That, that waste. And those are just animals. So how much more than Christ as the Son of God for us? So these are the first two chapters. Now the fact that God is dedicating two chapters to this, which is a repetition of Exodus 28 and 29, shows you how important this event is. Now the other thing you must understand is that this is just what's necessary for Aaron and the priests to get into the tabernacle and to atone for the tabernacle. We haven't gotten to the atonement of the people yet. That's chapter 16. And the reason we haven't gotten there yet is because we're going to be interrupted by an event. So now... Aaron and his four sons are consecrated. They're ordained, and they're purified, and they're now at peace with God that they can now serve on God's behalf in the tabernacle. So that means they have daily responsibilities. Every day, they must go into the tabernacle courtyard and offer up burnt offerings to begin the day, and then they will be responsible for receiving the sacrifices of the people that they're bringing on a daily basis, and at the end of the day, they had to offer burnt offerings to close out the day and purify the altar, so to speak. And so it's kind of like scrubbing your grill before you grill, grilling, and then scrubbing your grill after you're done to keep it in good shape. And that's what God is doing spiritually with the burnt offering in the morning and the evening. Likewise, they would be going into the tabernacle and they would making sure that the oil was restocked and the candles stand every single day, morning, and they'd be restocking the altar of incense. And then once a week, they'd be bringing freshly baked unleavened bread into the table of showbread at the same time they're eating that bread from the previous week. And so those would be their major daily duties. Then after a while, they would also do inspections on the tent to see if there was just decay happening to the fabric, because we all know that skins and fabrics don't last forever, and so making sure that nothing there is being um, ignored and that everything's being patched and replaced in the way that they're supposed to. So these would be their everyday normal duties, not including just everything that else is happening. And so this is what Aaron and his sons begin to do. 